everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Nathan McCauley, co-founder and CEO of Anchorage Digital, a leading provider of crypto custody for institutional investors and funds. Previously, Nathan worked at Square when it was only 45 people and left when the team had well over 1,000. He worked in all of Square's security efforts, including acting as a member of Square's engineering leadership team to set collaborative, effective security culture across the company. Nathan met his co-founder Diogo while working at Square, and the two later worked together at Docker, working on security build-out for cloud infrastructure. In today's episode, we discuss the lessons Nathan learned from helping scale Square, getting a banking charter at Anchorage Digital, Nathan's thoughts on key crypto trends moving forward, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Nathan, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's incredibly oh, exciting yeah, to have you. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, honored, honored for you to join us. Uh, so let's just uh, jump right into it. So for listeners that uh, don't know, could you just briefly introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your career to date and how you became involved in fintech? Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, hi, everyone. My name is Nathan McCauley. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Anchorage Digital. Uh, Anchorage is a uh, digital asset platform. Uh, we allow institutional investors, be it hedge funds, venture capitalists, family offices, Anybody uh, kind of on the buy side in order to buy and hold crypto assets and really fully participate in them, whether it's uh, buy, sell, hold, staking, governance, uh, kind of the whole range of services. Uh, and then also we're um, setting things up so that uh, we can also be available as a platform for others uh, so that businesses of all kinds can add crypto as a service offering, whether you're a bank, whether you're a broker, whether you're a fintech. Uh, anybody and everybody who wants to uh, add crypto as an offering to their platform uh, will be able to use the the Anchorage system to do so. Uh, a little bit about me, how did I get here? How did I, how did I get involved in, in fintech? Um, well, early on in my career, I was uh, lucky enough to be an uh, early employee at a company called Square, one of the earlier fintechs, I suppose, uh, and got to cover a, a bunch of different problems there, uh, particularly focused on things around security. Uh, so everything from uh, manufacturing of the the Square Reader to security of the backend systems, the credit card systems, integration with networks, um, everything around uh, mobile PIN and accepting uh, PINs on phones. I uh, was really kind of deeply involved in all of that. Lucky enough in my time at Square uh, to meet uh, my co-founder, Diogo. Uh, he'd been, before coming to Square, had been working on his PhD in distributed systems um, and we both joined the security team at about the same at the same time, and have been lucky enough to spend the rest of our career working together. Uh, so we, we spent a bunch of time building up all the the security infrastructure at at Square, uh, and then lucky enough to uh, to join Docker uh, pretty early on, where we got to do really scaled security build out for uh, cloud uh, infrastructure. Most of the workloads in Amazon GCP. And Azure run inside of Docker containers, uh, so really got to do like highly scaled security infrastructure there. And always kind of wanted to start a company and uh, looked at uh, availability of opportunities where we could really meet a, a meet a need. And in 2017, it became incredibly clear that digital assets and institutional custodian for digital assets was something that was going to be uh, necessary in the next uh, over the next several decades. Was just going to be one of the major trends. And so Diogo and I were like, okay, this is our opportunity. Let's do it. So uh, set out to build a team, raise some money, and um, really kind of incorporated and started the company in late 2017, and then been building it ever since. Uh, so that's a little bit of the little bit of the background story. At this point, we're um, 
up and fully operational four years in. We've got hundreds of clients, uh, tens of billions in assets in the platform, huge number of uh, clients. And we were fortunate enough to be issued the first federal bank charter uh, to hold digital assets. Uh, so we're actually regulated by the OCC, issued a, issued a bank charter, and we're just coming up on the year anniversary of that, that bank charter. Uh, so pretty special, pretty exciting, and it's really kind of a, a fun a fun little corner of fintech, banking, and um, the future uh, that all kind of intersects uh, at Anchorage. That's a really incredible journey there. Uh, and of course, we'll dive a lot more into uh, your work at An- Anchorage Digital in a second. Uh, but let's just start from the roots there a little bit. So I believe you were at Square you know, fairly early on in the company's uh, growth process. You helped it scale a lot. Any major takeaways you had from your time at Square that kind of helped you found Anchorage? Wow, so many. I mean, uh, Square was, uh, Square in, say, 2011, 2012 was really an incredible place. Uh, so I I joined when you would probably say that most of the most of the volume that was happening on Square was a small number of local coffee shops and maybe some like peer-to-peer Craigslist transactions. You know, really really kind of the, the early stages of what was going on. But even then, there was a, was a clear understanding that there was um, incredible growth potential for that company, like a, a built-in business model from the beginning, and an incredibly uh, incredibly thoughtful internal culture of uh, design focus, of absolute transparency on all business me- metrics, uh, real enablement of, of everybody to understand what drove the business, how it was being driven, and, and what was going on. Uh, so between the, the the senior leadership there and, and a, a bunch of what happened in the culture, very, very much shaped uh, who I am today and, and the way that I think about uh, being an entrepreneur and, and you know, really building a, building a company culture. Uh, so lots of stuff around scaling, recruiting, certainly have, have adopted the internal culture of transparency so that uh, everybody... Everybody knows what's driving the business at Anchorage and 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 where we need to be going. And a the other the other thing I'd say is there was a real real culture of experimentation of try things and see if it works. I think a, a lot of people look at Square and see the things that survived. I think a lot of people uh, probably forget the things that didn't work out quite so well, and that's fine. Uh, but there was a real culture of experimentation and you know try something, see if it works, and then invest in it if it still does. Uh, and I think that ends up being a really, really healthy culture to have. Yeah, I, I really like that last point a lot on experimentation. And I would love to hear if you have any specific examples of something that maybe you tried at Square that didn't quite work out, but uh, you're glad that you got to try it anyways. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest ones was um, I joined very early on and uh, probably not a lot of people remember this, but there was a um, there's like a buyer side product that uh, Square attempted, and its first version was called Card Case. Uh, to the degree people remember it, it was probably, probably people probably remember it as like Square Wallet, but the very early versions of it were called uh, Square Card Case. Um, that was actually my first, the first team I got to be on uh, was uh, Square Card Case. I was, I was there to work on the, the security for it, the security of the interaction. And basically, the, the idea was, and it was a, a beautiful design, I still think it's the right interface, uh, is that um, when you go into a store that is enabled with Square, uh, they are able to detect that you are in proximity and you pay just by saying, hey, put it on Nathan. Uh, and because your your picture has shown up because of proximity, uh, it's, it's the most personal 
and beautiful experience uh, that I've ever seen in terms of a payment. So it was, I, I still maintain that it was 100% right, uh, even though it didn't work because it's, it's a hard, many reasons it didn't work. Uh, uh, merchant density tends to, tends to matter a lot for these kinds of things. But so that was one that we, we tried for a long time, tried different variations of it, and eventually decided, hey, you know, this isn't, this isn't quite working out. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back to this later. Uh, but there were, there were many incarnations of that, that idea uh, until eventually you saw the success hit with Square Cash uh, that, you know, frankly took t- until many years later, many, many iterations later, later. Uh, so that, that's just kind of one example where I was, I was personally involved uh, but it was, an, it was an overall culture of that that I, I thought was very, very helpful and very uh, honestly inspiring to look at, you know, hey, we got a we got a great business, but there's opportunity for fundamental innovation that we can also attempt. Yeah, that's an incredible story. I had never heard that before. Um, it, it was a little, little bit surprising the product didn't work out the way you described it. It was, it was really nice. Before yeah. we move on from Square, I am uh, compelled to ask. How do you feel about the name change uh, and maybe even the, the culture change uh, to becoming Block? Yeah, I think there's a lot to this. I would say that what I remember from my time at Square, and my understanding is that there's still uh, many of my colleagues are still there because it's a it's a great place to work, and many people have decided to spend their careers there. Square always had this idea that the product and the culture and the physical space of working should be one seamless notion. Uh, and so there was a reiteration of uh, Square's culture that was built into our offices were named after famous squares, uh, like uh, Tahrir Square. The conference rooms were named after squares. Uh, and so naming was always very, very important at that company and naming to reinforce the culture. Uh, as an example, we had cultural pillars at Square, and they were they were called the four corners of Square, and so the four corners of Square were the the cultural pillars of the company, or I guess corners uh, of the of the company. Uh, so naming was never taken lightly. It, it's actually incredibly incredibly important, uh, and so I it is unambiguous to me that uh, what they are doing with their name is signaling something very important and very meaningful. Uh, about what the company is going to be doing, where they're going to be going long term, uh, and that uh, that will likely resonate for uh, quite a long time. A related concept that I would say is that um, as companies get bigger, get bigger, it becomes harder and harder to change your identity to uh, invest in new areas, and it takes an incredible amount of courage to say, "Hey, we're going to go through that kind of an identity shift." And so in the same way that you see that happening at Square with its new name, uh, Block, I would guess similarly that the things you kind of see with the meta bet uh, at the company previously known as Facebook is a, is a very meaningful uh, signal to the market, to the employees, to the clients uh, that there is uh, bigger aspirations going on. And so I'm, I'm fundamentally supportive of the idea, and I know that they've, they've gone into that very thoughtfully and carefully. I did not realize that the Square name was so ingrained in the culture of the company, uh, which makes the name change to Block even even more uh, important and interesting. Um, yeah. But let's let's switch over now to, to your work at Anchorage Digital. Uh, you mentioned, as you mentioned, you've recently raised a large Series D round. Part of the reason for that round was uh, getting your federal banking charter. 
I've talked to a number of fintech companies that really struggle to get a banking charter, and I have to imagine it's even harder for a crypto company to do so. So first of all, congratulations. Uh, and second of all, how were you guys able to make this possible? Yeah, so um, lots of lots of things to dig into there. Uh, so how do you get a get a bank charter? For most, I would say it is not the it is not the right strategy to pursue a, a bank charter. Bank charters are uh, incredibly laborious uh, in terms of prep. It's a it's a very long years long process uh, to get up and going, and then once you get in, that's really just kind of the start of the complexity. Actually, operating the thing once once you have the bank charter is far more work than the application process, and so it's a permanent responsibility. At the same time, it is a the way that the banking regulators look at it, the way that the American public and the society at large view banks is they ascribe to them a fundamental level of trust. Uh, and the fundamental of level of trust that you are granted, even in the even in the language itself that we talk about with with banks, is one of of trustworthiness, of diligence, of uh, incredible operational trustworthiness uh, that that gets put in. And so it's uh, in, it's in many ways it is a sacred duty to operate a bank. Uh, it's not something to be taken lightly. It is not something to be cavalier with with at all. So that's kind of the starting point there. How did it work out for us? Well, from the very initiation of the company, I kind of looked at the whole marketplace and became very clear that two things were going to be needed. First thing that was going to be needed was fundamentally better technology than anybody who was doing custody at the time in 2017. In 2017, there was still this meme in the industry that cold storage versus hot storage was the right way to store crypto assets. Uh, which, you know, from mine and Diogo's time at, at Square, we, we viewed functionally as incompetence. Uh, the idea that in order to make a system secure, you have to turn it off, uh, that is not uh, a competent system. That is not a good system. That is actually unsophistication. Uh, so a fundamentally better system was going to be needed because of what's going to happen in the blockchain industry. And that's kind of what we predicted in 2017. Sure enough, here we are um, several years later, Staking, governance, DeFi, NFTs all suggest that you should have active access to the keys, active access to be able to do things in those networks, and the complexity is going to only going to increase over time. So there was need for a fundamental tech innovation. As difficult as the tech innovation was that we were going to need to get crypto to be regulated. We're going to need to get crypto to be accessible through a regulated entity. And so if there if there was to be dual contrary positions uh, that we kind of set out to solve at the beginning was fundamentally better tech and nearly impossible regulatory build in order to get set up with regulated entities. We started out at the, at the state level. And so the way this actually worked is that we were we were issued a, a state-issued trust charter. Um, and there are actually many in crypto that have state-issued trust charters. Uh, Nevada issues them, New York issues them, South Dakota issues them. And those are all kind of in a bucket of state-regulated uh, trust companies. It's, just, it's a particular kind of, almost like a mini bank in a sense, uh, that um, has state-level oversight, uh, certainly not at the same level as a bank, but you kind of get a get a good start to being regulated. And it turns out that the OCC has a way to convert one of those state-chartered trust companies into a national bank. And so we spent many years filing for and operating 
a state chartered trust company and then transitioned that into a national bank. Uh, and so our path was not necessarily just a de novo bank application, uh, but start as a trust and then convert that trust into the into the national bank. That national bank allows us to have kind of full fiduciary powers. It allows us to be an unambiguous qualified custodian. And I'd say most notably, it allows us to far more easily serve as a sub-custodian to large banks, large brokers, and large fintechs uh, as a regulated financial institution that is regulated in many cases at the same level or higher uh, than many of those uh, platforms that want to add crypto to their offering. At any point in the process, did you feel like it was harder for you to obtain the charter than it would be for a fintech company that wasn't engaged in crypto activities? So the answer there is that I would actually have to say no. And the the reason is, is that fintechs, uh, in the way that we kind of typically think about them, so like fintechs right now are, are typically ones that are building bank s products, but delivering that through kind of the, the fintech lens. So more accessibility, more beautiful interfaces, uh, but still fundamentally dollar-based products. And so a lot of what is happening there is dollar accounts, uh, dollar transactions. In some sense, we removed the problem by not dealing with dollars. And so we, we actually don't handle fiat currency. When you're holding assets within our, within our bank, uh, you're not holding them in a, in a deposit-taking mechanism. Uh, and so it actually, in a counterintuitive way, it might have been easier for us as a crypto company. We had to take on all the crypto complexity, uh, but we didn't have to take on some of the real questions around the debate about whether fintechs ought to have uh, bank charters uh, because we, we avoided some of those and were more, in some ways, actually more pedestrian as a bank uh, than some of the fintechs that are a, l- a little bit more interesting in terms of their access to, say, FedRails, uh, FedWire, and, and things like that. Yeah, that's really interesting and not the answer I expected at all. Switching a little bit, can we talk a little bit about the products that Anchorage Digital offers? Um, can you maybe give an overview of those? I know you touched on it a little bit up front uh, and kind of the use cases that you're helping your clients uh, solve. Sure. Several product lines that I think are, are meaningful and helpful to people. So certainly the first and, and where we started was all things custody of digital assets. So custody of Bitcoin, custody of Ethereum, uh, custody of Filecoin, Flow, Oasis, Cello, uh, kind of any of these crypto assets where there's a team creating a, a new blockchain uh, that fundamentally has some, some mission that they want to pull off in the world. So we custody for the protocols, uh, for their treasuries, uh, and for their investors. That's a very, very popular product, a huge swath of the venture capital and hedge fund community that is investing in these protocols is, is holding their assets with us. Um, and the protocol foundations themselves are holding them. So as an example, Filecoin, holding most of their Filecoin uh, at Anchorage. Uh, so a bunch of these where we, we have a, a bread and butter that works nicely there. As soon as we got that up and operational, it became very clear looking at our clients' behavior that as much as um, some people might be long-term holders of crypto, some people want to sell. Some people want to sell their assets for a variety of reasons, and some people want to buy into those positions. Uh, so it, it was just logical sense to add a brokerage capability, allow people to buy and sell crypto assets through the platform. Uh, and so we built that out, and that's a that's a very popular service now. Uh, so we allow people to get execution, uh, wire, us, wire us money, and then we, we will execute for them. 
On top of that, once you have a, a very large custodian, particularly when you have assets like cryptos that are um, not really accepted in anywhere else within the within the banking industry or within the custodial industry, actually makes sense to build out a lending program. And so we uh, allow our clients to opt into a lending program where they can either lend out their assets or they can borrow crypto assets, like borrow Bitcoin, borrow Ethereum, borrow other assets, or borrow dollars against their uh, crypto positions. So you have a you have a bunch of Bitcoin with us, and you want to borrow because you want to you want to buy a house for your parents, or you want to make some trade within the crypto markets. Any of these kinds of use cases, we support those and allow people to allow people to do that. That's actually where we first got our bank partnerships, um, because again, we don't we don't hold a lot of dollars, but there's a lot of banks who are starved for yield and would like to earn uh, interest on their deposits, uh, and so they they bring their uh, deposit base to Anchorage Lending, and then Anchorage Lending will facilitate those uh, those transactions for them. Uh, so that ends up being very popular. And then on top of that, there's a bunch of crypto-native stuff. So staking, allowing clients to participate in staking, allowing clients to vote in on-chain governance, uh, say, you know, Maker, Compound, Uniswap, all of these uh, protocols have a decentralized way of uh, decision-making, and if you're holding your assets within Anchorage, if you're holding your Uni, if you're holding your Cello, if you're holding your Maker within Anchorage, you would like to be able to vote uh, in those protocols, and so we we support that and allow allow clients to participate in that. Uh, so ends up being a really uh, kind of a, a full featured bank where you get everything from custody to trading to lending to on chain services like uh, staking and governance. Actually, just to double click on that last point a little bit, so. I draw the analogy of voting in protocols as something similar to having a voting right in a company that you own shares for, but the actual engagement in that is very different. How have you seen your customers engage on the ability to vote in, in protocols through uh, Anchorage? It's a great question. So I think in um, traditional securities, the default approach there, well, number one, all of the infrastructure is built out. So it's actually very simple logistically to actually cast a vote because there's there's mature technology to do that, um, it might be a pain to actually use it, but you, you know kind of the the way to actually get it done. In in crypto assets, most of the time, it actually means that you're going to take the keys that are your ownership and sign a transaction that you send to the blockchain in order to express your intent in the vote. Uh, so this is a highly sensitive operation, as as sensitive as moving assets is this uh, transaction that you need to do in order to vote on chain. So how have we seen people use it? Well, the actual truth is that a lot of people aren't voting unless their custodians support it uh, because it's such a sensitive operation. It's not easily possible through cold storage systems. Uh, There's a lot of people that just won't vote as much if they don't have a custodian that supports it. Uh, So one of the interesting things that you see is people move assets to Anchorage so that they can vote. Uh, because some of these votes are very consequential. Uh, take, for example, Maker. There was a vote on whether different kinds of uh, collateral should back the the decentralized stablecoin of Dai uh, rather than uh, just Ethereum. Maybe it should be uh, other assets as well. Uh, so, multi-collateral Dai was a as a big vote, and we were um, meaningfully involved in the in the voting of that. You see interest rate changes and uh, protocol level changes on things like Compound and Uni. Uh, and so there's a there's a bunch of uh, different patterns where people want to vote on chain, um, and we're really kind of thrilled to support those use cases and really, in many ways, help 
those blockchains achieve their objective of decentralization, of decentralized governance, and of um, you know really being truly community owned. Uh, it's it's a pretty small world. I was actually um, working at a VC this summer, and we invested in a company that's helping bring real world assets on chain and using them as collateral with Maker. So it's very cool to hear. Oh, great! Uh, yeah, it's very cool to hear that you were uh, involved in in making that possible as well. Yeah. Um, let's maybe switch gears a little bit and put our HR hats on. Um, so I read, uh, I think on TechCrunch recently that you have jumped headcount 175%. Um, so another congratulations is in order for that, but also yeah. just curious how that's going and how has it been kind of steering a, a ship that's uh, growing so quickly? So this is where, um, some of the, some of the experience has been incredibly helpful to me. Uh, some of the experience at Square has been incredibly helpful. So, by by comparison, I was at Square over four years. We went from forty to fourteen hundred in that time. So got to see a little bit what organizational scaling looks like, from growing pains to the fact that nearly every employee complains about how much they have to run interviews, uh, to being able to like build onboarding systems that allow people to come up to speed very quickly. All of these things uh, operationally that just kind of burst at the seams. And you got to do all that while also maintaining your culture, maintaining your uh, speed of execution with the added bonus uh, that we all get to involve now of building fully remote companies. Uh, so no, it's not as if everybody's in the same room. Uh, and so you uh, and kind of inherently have people who are able to understand less of the system because, you know, nobody is uh, interacting and kind of having uh, fortuitous overheard conversations in the office. So, the easiest answer is it's hard. Uh, there's a lot of complexity to it. There's a lot of challenges. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time bringing everybody up to speed on things. But if you have really strong cultural touch points, uh, you can have a, a common message and a common vision uh, that goes across all of that. So this is where the internal transparency really, really helps around thinking about uh, giving people access to every metric at the company, uh, understanding exactly how our custody system is growing asset by asset, how our lending book is growing, how our trading volumes are, are increasing, and really kind of understanding at an inputs basis, what do we need to do in order to uh, keep, the, keep the company operational? In our case, there's a, uh, an added complexity where I think in many companies, certain divisions or certain skill sets, there's a, there's a real case to be made that good enough is good enough. Most cases, you do not have to have a fundamentally innovative finance team or a fundamentally innovative compliance team or a fundamentally innovative uh, legal team. A lot of places you can just like focus the innovation in product and you'll get by. It turns out with the complexity of running a crypto bank, you really need an A team across every functional unit and A team not just in execution, but also in creativity. Uh, so what that means is that I have just a great time interacting with all of the teams because everybody at Anchorage, there's a real case to be made that they're doing some of the best work of their career, solving the hardest problems. Uh, and that creates a really fun culture internally of, well, building on that transparency, uh, but then also just the, the optimism that everyone has uh, because uh, the company is growing and they themselves are growing within that context. I'm sure it's a challenge, but uh, with the amount of talent I'm seeing headed towards the crypto industry right now, I'm Confident you can uh, continue to find A-team people um, that you need to, to keep growing. Considering you are at the forefront of so much change in fintech and in crypto, 
and DeFi. Uh, I would love to get some of your thoughts on trends in the industry that you are most excited to see play out uh, in the next three to five years. Yeah, great question. So the first answer that I have to give on this is just that like, I'm not a venture capitalist. I'm not a, I'm not a hedge fund manager. I'm not at all someone who is thinks of himself as someone who can predict the future or predict markets. Uh, you know, I, the, the only guess I'm really making with Anchorage is that there is a big trend happening here, which is crypto and infrastructure is needed to support all of that. So uh, please discount any of my uh, pr- predictions or postulations based on that. That said, I am, I am tracking a few trends that I think are, are really pretty interesting and exciting. One of them I would say is uh, mass adoption of crypto assets in an even more meaningful way. Right now, if, you're, if you are an American or really a, a, a global citizen, it's likely that there are going to be specialized venues where you go and get access to crypto assets, which is not the case with stocks, bonds, equities, other typical investments. Other typical investments are available functionally everywhere. Uh, whether it's through your bank, whether it's through your broker, whether it's through other kinds of investment vehicles. And so the, 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 one of the big trends is going to happen is mass adoption of crypto assets into banks, into fintechs. And so it, it's going to be very soon the case that there will be no such thing as a, we're the first crypto bank. It's going to be this soon the case that there is no such thing as a crypto bank because they all are. Uh, there's not going to be a crypto enabled fintech because there's just going to be an assumption that all the fintechs give you access to to crypto in some way. Even credit unions, I think. I, even the credit unions will allow investment into, into crypto assets. Uh, so that trend of, of mass adoption, I think, ends up being very, very interesting. The other mega trend, I would say, just is the, um, the rise of the programming platforms and the, the programming paradigms that are available here. What do I mean by that? Well, one way to look at Ethereum is that it's a smart contract language, a smart contract um, blockchain. Another way to look at it is that it's a world computer. And if we're looking at the uh, the, the story of uh, globalization, globalization in some ways is in decline right now. There's a, a trend towards kind of insularness on, on in many nations, frankly. And so it, it may well be that over the next several years, the best way to build a global product and a globally available product is to deploy it on a blockchain, specifically because a blockchain has no nation state. And uh, getting that global reach via the blockchain, I think, ends up being a very, very interesting trend. And we're just at the beginning of this, and I think a lot of people are missing it because it's right now branded as DeFi. And so it, it feels like it's a bunch of financial products that are built on decentralized blockchains, but it just happens that the first applications are the ones, uh, they're, they happen to be financial applications, maybe because Bitcoin's legacy is a, as a uh, cash or store of value uh, kind of an attempt. Uh, but what's really happening is global, global applications are being built. And the more that global applications are built, uh, the more that I think we end up with maybe fundamentally global social networks, fundamentally global video sharing, fundamentally global music. I mean, who knows? There's a, there's a lot of opportunity for innovation there. And the, the mainstreaming of that via the whole NFT movement 
is really just a hint, I think, at how big this could become with owners and ownership economy mixing with creator economy. And this is, this is just like the beginning of a, I think of, of a very, very interesting and large trend that's happening now. Yeah. The two use cases for blockchain that I wish I had that are outside of financial services that I wish I had a greater lens into would be anything supply chain management related, uh, especially given like the supply chain issues we've had in the past two years and anything creator economy related. Um, so for artists, for musicians and so on. Um, so it's exciting times to see uh, how those things change. On the flip side of the previous question, and I, and I almost don't want to ask this because you give such a good answer for what you're excited about. Um, but are there any sectors that you think might be a little bit overhyped right now, maybe a little bit something that you're a little bit bearish on or, or maybe something that you just find a hard time wrapping your head around? That's a, it's a good question. I think there's a, this is like the, the bearishness generally is a really good opportunity to be wrong. Um, because the, <laughs> the things you're bearish on, the people remember what you were down on and it, it didn't work out. Um, so I, I tend to be a like default optimist person and look for paths that things could work. Now, with that said, what areas am I maybe skeptical about? I would say all things enterprise blockchain. All things where the the notion is is that a append only ledger with proof of work in order to add to that ledger ends up somehow meaningfully solving an internal company problem uh, that maybe doesn't need decentralized consensus. I just I just don't know if the technology gain there is actually worth the like operational costs. The operational costs of running a a global system tend to be there for a reason. And I think that, that there, there may be better engineering-based solutions to, to some of those kinds of, those kinds of use cases. Uh, now, that's broad, and inevitably, that's like such a, such a broad trend that something is going to work out there. Uh, so I, I feel like I have to caveat even that. But maybe, maybe not a, a thing that I'm necessarily uh, so excited about right now. Maybe another would be that I don't know if there's room for, say, hundreds of stablecoins. I think stablecoins in particular tend to benefit from network effects and maybe even, maybe even close to monopoly effects. Uh, there's a reason the dollar is so popular. It's because it's accepted everywhere. And so to the degree you're going to try to build a, some form of a, a cash or medium of exchange, uh, there's a natural network effect there. That would suggest that there there might be a runaway runaway winner. What I don't think we should do is pick a winner. I think the the winner should be decided by the market. And there's a, there's a lot of different um, experiments around this right now. And the the one that wins is the one that will garner enough trust, be regulated, and be uh, thoughtfully executed and. Uh, you know, trusted by a, a large portion of the population. And so it's great to be running the experiment, uh, but I don't know if we're going to have dozens of these long-term. Yeah, I had a, uh, I had a crypto lawyer on the show a few months back, and he said something similar along the, for um, stablecoins. I think the number he threw out was about 20. So it's certainly not, not one per major currency, but yeah. you know, kind of just spitballing for roughly 20 stablecoins would, would make sense. Nathan, the last thing I wanted to do today was just 
help the audience get to know you a little bit better uh, with a few rapid fire style questions. Um, sure. Hoping to get answers here in, let's say, 10 seconds or less. Uh, ready to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. What is your favorite hobby? Favorite hobby uh, right now, chess, playing chess. Did that start from the uh, TV show that I'm blanking on, or is that has that been going on for a while? Oh no, I was in uh, I was in chess club in high school. Um, oh. I was. I'll note that I was also on the wrestling team, but yes, I was in the I was in the chess club. That's a great combo. What are you most looking forward to in 2022? Uh, most looking forward to in 2022, professionally continuing to see Anchorage grow, scale, uh, see people join, and. Uh, you know, really achieve uh, achieve uh, satisfaction in their careers from joining. And on the personal side, I've got three kids. They're little, and I just I love being with them and seeing them grow. Yeah, that's amazing. What is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? I grew up in a town of 168 people, uh, and so a very very small town called Economy, mm-hmm. Indiana. Uh, and so I'm uh, it's. Funny to me that uh, Anchorage now has more employees than my hometown. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty. I'm sure uh, going home for Thanksgiving is is always fun. Yeah. Um, last question, and you can take a little bit longer on this one if you'd like. Uh, what does success look like for you and for Anchorage Digital? Wow, great question. Um, the way I think about Anchorage is that there are uh, a huge amount of uh, innovative teams, innovative companies, and innovative projects that are spinning up within the broad movement that we think of blockchain, crypto, digital assets. And I find such an incredible uh, incredible amount of optimism in what uh, that, that community is building uh, that I want to, I will feel successful if more and more of that community feels like Anchorage is a partner to them. And is a is a a trusted a trusted friend a, tr- a trusted you know booster of that of that entire movement. The, one of the ways that I like to think about it is that um, Alexander Hamilton started Bank of New York not because Bank of New York needed to exist, but that America needed a bank. The American experiment needed a needed a bank and needed a partner. And I I would love it if. Anchorage was able to be that partner to the movement. If it was able to be that partner to the uh, the very long project that is uh, crypto, blockchain, Web3, and everything we're doing in this space. I did not expect that we would end today with Alexander Hamilton, but I'm very, very happy that we did. Uh, that was an incredible answer. And Nathan, I wish, wish you the uh, best of luck in the continued growth uh, and success of Anchorage. And thanks again for uh, hopping on the show today. Thanks a lot. I loved it. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.